All right, it is now noon, and so I think we can kick things off. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Iowa City Foreign Relations Council's program with our guest speaker, Dr. Brandon, Brandon Valeriano. Uh, thanks to Dr. Valeriano and to everyone who's joined us online today. I'm Bill Reisinger, Professor of Political Science at the University of Iowa. I'm a member of the ICFRC's board and host for today's program. We would like to acknowledge and thank our annual donors, sponsors, and partners for their support. The Iowa Arts Council through the Iowa Department of Cultural Affairs, Humanities Iowa and the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Iowa's International Programs, Honors Program, Public Policy Center, and Center for Human Rights. The Stanley UI Foundation Support Organization, Midwest One Bank, and City Channel 4 for providing online access to all of ICFRC's programs, along with the UI Library Archives. As we get started, please identify where your video and audio mute and unmute buttons are located. Please mute your audio and video for the duration of the presentation so you do not interrupt the speaker during his remarks. Following our speaker's presentation at about 12.45 p.m., we will have a 15-minute Q&A. You will be able to submit your questions via the chat function. At that time, we invite you to turn on your video, but please keep your audio muted to avoid any background noise. It's now my pleasure to introduce Brandon Valeriano, who will speak about what do we know about cybersecurity, understanding Russian cyber aggression. Brandon Valeriano serves as a senior fellow at the Cato Institute in Foreign and Defense Policy, and he is a distinguished senior fellow at the Marine Corps University. He was most recently the Donald Bren Chair of Military Innovation at the Marine Corps University at the Krulak Center and a senior advisor for the Cyber Solarium Commission. Dr. Valeriano has published six books and dozens of articles for such outlets as the Journal of Politics, International Studies Quarterly, and the Journal of Peace Research. His two most recent books are Cyber War versus Cyber Reality from 2015 and Cyber Strategy 2018, both with Oxford University Press. He has provided testimony on cyber conflict before the United States Senate and the Parliament of the United Kingdom. Ongoing research explores conflict escalation, big data in cybersecurity, and repression in cyberspace. Dr. Valeriano is the area editor in international relations for the Journal of Cybersecurity and the series editor of Disruptive Technology and International Security for Oxford University Press. He has a PhD from Vanderbilt University. So it is great pleasure to welcome Dr. Valeriano to the Iowa City Foreign Relations Council today. And Brandon, it's all yours. Great. So uh, thanks for having me. Uh, someone just asked me a minute ago uh, how the press front is going. And uh, I just mentioned that we submitted something to the Washington Post this morning. So hopefully it'll run tomorrow or the next day. But uh, while Bill was talking, I was also forwarding it to a reporter. But um, I think one thing to say about the conflict that's ongoing is that a lot of people are acting like they know and understand what's going on. And it's fairly dubious. And there's a lot of fog of war right now. There's a lot of confusion. But um, I, I think if you've been keeping up and you've been paying attention to uh, the, the, the evolution of Russian military capabilities, a lot of what I say isn't gonna be very surprising. But for some people it is because a lot of people like to inflate threats and inflate myths that there is this big bad adversary out there who's looking to get us. And that can't be any more clear 
given what Putin and Russia have been doing over this last week, or I think we're on day seven now. Um, but if you want to take it to the slice of research that I focus on, which is technology and international security, uh, we've seen enormous Russian failures on this front. And it just demonstrates something I said in 2015, uh, that Putin is a paper tiger. He can take over small countries, he can cause massive civilian death. Um, but it's very clear that if he were to fight a peer adversary, well, one, I don't even think there are peer adversaries really um, in NATO at this point because their capabilities vastly outweigh Russian capabilities. In any case, I'll just get to the presentation and I don't want to take too much time on this because I'm, I'm sure you have many questions and I can cover anything that deals with cyber, military technology and innovation and the current state of the Russian uh, conflict. And if it's not really in my wheelhouse, I'll suggest some sources that might be helpful to you to follow along. Uh, but I think one thing to remember is a lot of people are charlatans in this, you know, in, the, in this world. Uh, a lot of people, particularly people who work in the policy community like I do, because I mainly work at the Cato Institute right now, um, speculate without evidence and without research. So it's good to be here. It's good to be at Iowa. It's good to be, uh, you know, connected to the political science department here. Uh, I see Sarah's smiling face on my list of uh, pictures here for uh, for uh, attendees. So hi, Dr. Mitchell. <laughs> uh, and let me start the presentation and let's just get on with it uh, because I just updated it as of a few minutes ago. So this is fairly timely. Okay, so this should be from the beginning. Is everyone good? Everyone can see it? Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I did have these pictures of the cyber bears um, up at ISA uh, once and uh, the Russian academic on the panel was very insulted. And I think I just said something like, if a bear is gonna insult you, I think we have deeper problems in our relationship. So I think I was right. But uh, I, you know, I, I like to have a little bit of a sense of humor here. Um, I, I am gonna be a bit, bit muted today. I'm not gonna be my usual effusive self um, because I was just telling the, the organizers that I got my fourth uh, COVID shot yesterday because it just happened to be available and I was you know downtown Alexandria. So I got it done and uh, I don't feel bad right now. I just don't feel great. So yeah, I'm a little bit lethargic, but it's, it's fine. This is important. And after this, I'm taking the rest of the day off. Um, so cyber operations have become an important manifestation of political warfare. But I think one of the key questions many people have is there are gonna be cyber war. And I, I think that's a challenging proposition given the nature of cyber operations and tactics. And, you know, a little bit of my origin story is that um, I started doing cybersecurity about 13 years ago. And um, I was invited to a conference at the Naval War College. And I thought cyber would be this new, interesting way of warfare. And everything I've learned since then has demonstrated to me that it's not a new form of warfare. It's just a continual modern manifestation of what George Keenan talked about in terms of political warfare. So with this talk, I'm gonna provide a picture or portrait of how the leading cyber actor Russia uses the digital domain to disrupt, spy, and degrade. But I have to say that Russia does behave quite differently than many other cyber actors. But on the other hand, they don't demonstrate any greater capability or rate of success than other actors in the space. So there is a changing character of power, but there's not really a changing character of war. And I think that's something I wanna unpack a little bit today. 
So, um, I mean, of course, uh, I think something we have to refer to, of course, is the 2016 election and the political information warfare campaign uh, launched against the United States uh, by the Russians. And, uh, you know, it's not a political issue. This, this is a modern form of political warfare. It was uh, validated by everyone in the intelligence community. They have different strengths for how much they, um, you know, accepted the findings. But the difference or variation in how each intelligence operation or intelligence uh, group uh, accepts uh, findings really depends on the sourcing and the methods. So the NSA really wants signals intelligence, which we didn't have a lot of, but I think it's been clear since 2016 that we had a lot of hard traditional sources in the Russian government. And we continue to have a lot of these sources given how much we've known about the invasion plan. Um, so just as the nuclear age heralded important changes in conceptualizing the use of force to achieve political objectives, connectivity alters how rival states can seek position or relative advantage and course their adversaries. Uh, but I think the good news is that while Russian cyber operations are concerning, their efficacy is entirely questionable. They failed to leverage cyber operations during the 2022 war so far. And um, they failed in 2014 and 2008. They failed in Syria. They continue to fail. I, I've once said they doubled down on failure. And I think we're seeing that here. But are we seeing cyber war? No. So what does Russia want? Just to review where we are with the whole Russia situation. They want uh, great power status. They want to destabilize the West. A lot of people are very much focused on NATO, but I'm not so sure NATO exactly matters that clearly given that um, really Putin is seeking a return to 1994 and a return to the entirety of the Russians, uh, the Ukrainian state to Russian control. So they want leverage and influence. And I think it goes more to than these simple proposals that a lot of people are suggesting. This is a very deeply rooted existential crisis about Russia's assumptions about their future. And that's obviously a very deeply rooted existential crisis for the Ukrainian people. But what is Russia gaining from this war? It is not going well. Um, they have not moved in 24 hours. Um, uh, a lot of people are wondering why this column of equipment is stuck outside of Kiev. And I think it's very clear the reason is twofold. One, they don't have the logistics supplies to get these people off the road. And two, it's the only safety from Turkish drones. So this is where we are in modern warfare, where Turkish drones um, that the Turks didn't even want to buy, they bought Russian drones, uh, have become a decisive factor of war, but it's not really a decisive factor of the leveraging of cyber information operations, electronic operations. All these modern frames of future warfare are just not being demonstrated here. And you know, one of the questions is why, and hopefully I'll answer it a little bit. Russian strategies, uh, while rival states can, as we do show, use cyber operations to compel, they're more often uh, use the digital domain to signal, steal, and engage in covert propaganda as means of shaping long-term competition. So cyber is not a very useful tool for coercion. And um, a lot of people in this field have said this for a number of years, but a lot of other people are very much colored by fictions and imagination, which I don't think really has much place in warfare. I've been teaching for the US military and the Marine Corps for the last five years. I, uh, this presentation um, was rooted in an early version I gave in 2016 the headquarters of the US Marine Corps. 
So I've been doing this stuff for a long time and I've been focused on Russian cyber operations for a long time. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people are parachuting into this field and offering their perspective, which isn't exactly very useful. Uh, shaping operations form the foundation of Russian cyber strategy. Uh, they're a deviant state in cyberspace and they do things that other states don't do. But uh, I think one of the problems is that the, the broader conjunction of uh, propaganda efforts, espionage efforts, these actions might shape the direction of information between two opposing sides, but they do not lead to independent concessions. They do not really change the future of crisis bargaining. Uh, what do we know about Russian cyber operations? This is 2000 and 2016. Uh, I, I actually have a paper that's going through uh, JAG, uh, U.S. government <laughs> clearance right now, um, where we have coded over 500 cyber incidents between all parties from 2000 to 2020. Uh, I just don't have that just ready just yet. But this kind of illustrates the shape of Russian cyber operations. And I think, you know, one thing you want to notice here that while Russia tends to leverage the great operations more or you know, it's, it's probably one of the most active states in this space, given that, uh, you know, there is 35 overall degradation events and 11 of them are the Russians. Um, but the great majority of Russian operations are espionage operations. And I should say that this is just kind of the types of cyber activity that we've coded and delineated, because obviously not all cyber operations are the same and they can't be necessarily compared. So you want to really cover disruption or distractions. You want to cover espionage and we cover short and long-term espionage in our data. And we also cover degrade actions, which are seeking significant change or destruction of material and capability. So Russia is fairly active, uh, but based on expected counts and uh, just based on the general shape of the data, they're not all that different than other states and they kind of tend to perform just almost as expected, if not a little bit more escalatory. And I've also written about the escalation tendencies to an Atlantic Council paper and it's going in a book we're working on. Um, but uh, you know, there is some difference to Russian operations, but you know, not, not dramatically so. So what's happened to Ukraine to this point? Uh, I think uh, to set the table, cyber campaigns in Ukraine seek to disrupt and legitimize the country as a means of isolating Kiev and demonstrating the futility of the Russian state. There's a long history of Russian cyber attacks going back to 2014 in conjunction with the, uh, the first invasion of Crimea. Um, parallel to kinetic operations, there was a massive DDoS attack just as there was recently. There also was Sandworm, which was a power grid attack, and there was another power grid attack in 2015. But uh, I think the media has gone a little bit overboard on these issues. And uh, you know, one example is pretty telling in that basically the Ukrainians just went to the power substation and just flipped the power back on within two hours. So while Russians can impact industrial control systems and power, it's not easy, they're not very good. And just like the nature of the US electrical network as we saw from Texas last winter, um, antiquated and outdated power networks are actually a strength in this space. Uh, 2017 also saw NotPetya. It was an extensive um, economic attack uh, that was kind of hidden as ransomware, if I remember right. I can't exactly remember too closely right now. Uh, but uh, it caused significant economic damage, but not really significant political damage. 
um, which leads us to where we are right now. Oh, wait, actually, we've got to do 2016 election. The CIA and FBI and NSA concluded that current operatives use cyber methods to achieve a clear objective to undermine the public faith in the democratic process. Um, by 2015, the SVR, uh, which is the, the intelligence wing of the Russian state, and also the GRU, which is the intelligence wing of the Russian army, were both conducting operations. Um, actually, which is funny too, is that they were conducting parallel operations and it's pretty clear they weren't really communicating. Um, they also targeted uh, various state voting systems. You might've heard some of this stuff and they took some information uh, from voters. But you know, you can also, I, I don't know how much this will cost, but I assume it's like $200 to buy voting rules so you can you know, send out mail. So that's exactly what they took. They didn't change any votes. They didn't get into voting systems. They just got a bunch of addresses, which you know, is something anyone can buy. Um, there's no evidence of a direct link between the hacks and the outcome. There was a great PNAS paper, uh, I think that by the author, but uh, just demonstrated that the Russians were basically speaking to echo chambers. And there's really no, polls. Uh, we, we were asking uh, YouGov uh, if there were any polls from the time that demonstrated that WikiLeaks actually shaped information uh, and perceptions of the Russian uh, state. And there was no evidence for that. So while it was a pernicious and precarious operation, as it impacted the US state and caused a lot of us to question uh, our democracy and our foundation of democracy, there's no evidence that it actually changed the outcome of the election. I think that's an important during the 2022 war, there was a prediction that the Ukraine conflict would redefine how we think about cyber conflict because it will be the first time the state with real capabilities is willing to put it all on the line. That was said by Jason Healy, an adjunct researcher from Columbia. Um, he has been attached to the Department of Homeland Security and was also instrumental in setting up one of the first cyber commands in the United States government. But um, I think a lot of people have unfortunately gone off a little bit on the deep end here and are making dramatic predictions that they cannot support. We have seen cyber operations. Um, the current operations reflect attacks on trust in the Ukrainian state. There was Whispergate, a wiper posing as ransomware in mid-January. Dozens were impacted. Uh, take that for what you will. There was a massive DDoS attack against Ukraine in mid-February. And uh, there was a follow-on attack on February 23rd. February 23rd, Hermetic Wiper uh, was launched. And uh, while it's a very dangerous piece of uh, malware, a wiper is just something that destroys your computer and wipes everything off it. Um, all we have evidence for is multiple commercial and government uh, organizations impacted. It's just... It doesn't sound like a lot of damage. Um, in the meantime, uh, the Ukrainians don't really have cyber capabilities and they have tried to mobilize a Ukrainian IT army. You might have seen like uh, the electronic chargers in Russia kind of say, F you Putin. Uh, there's a, a lot of operations that are ongoing, particularly they're targeting Belarusian trains to the point where Belarusians couldn't pay to get on their trains the other day. But then I quipped, um, Basically, I don't think the Russian state is paying for the train fare, so I don't know why this matters. So there is activity, but it doesn't seem to be coordinated from the Russian state. It doesn't seem to be very impactful, and it doesn't seem to be having uh, much of a, an effect on the battlefield. So the Russian case offers us insights into how states fail 
to combine cyber operations with military instruments and power and conventional um, and for some people, this is shocking, but you know, like I mentioned, I've been teaching in the military community for five years. We don't have a doctrine of the strategic use of cyber weapons. It's not how it works. We only have 155 cyber mission forces. So those are basically squad level operators who are capable and able to launch offensive operations, but we don't have a lot of capabilities. And uh, the other thing is that when you work with the military, you start to realize quite quickly that they're very focused on effectiveness of operations, battle damage assessments, and being successful. And can you get promoted for a cyber operation that has no clear impact? That's really a tough question. And uh, I see a lot of my officers dealing with that issue. Moscow tends to use cyber attacks in two ways prior to the conflict to digitalize and distract the rival and also offer initial fighting uh, after the initial fight to create chaos consistent with active measures uh, to undermine the legitimacy of the state. However, Russian cyber operations during conflict do not appear to alter outcomes and make concessions more likely of note. Both the conflict in Georgia in 2008 and Ukraine in 2014 resulted in frozen conflicts, not decisive victories, and 2022 looks even more bleak. And I, I'm going to leave you with this tweet because uh, a lot of us in the academic community were a bit shocked to see Jay Healy say this the other day. And I, I don't mean to pick on Jay Healy, but he's really put himself out in front of this idea that cyber war is a decisive uh, factor in modern warfare. And, um, you know, I was a bit being a bit snarky and I, I was asking the reporters, like, you know, you're writing these wide north cyber pieces, and why are you only quoting the people who have got it wrong? or quoting the people who have economic interests in cyberspace threats being inflated. And that would be the threat intelligence firms that make a lot of money off this. And uh, Jay responded with two things. Um, is there an age gap between the academics worrying about the risks of a uh, far worse cyber conflict and those more Saganite? And I wonder if we see more war dynamic uh, influences the pessimism and it can all get far, far worse. So he's making two claims here. Uh, one, there's an age gap, and I, I pointed out below um, that there is an age gap. That you know, it's Jason Healy, it's Lucas Kilo from Oxford, and it's Ben Buchanan from Georgetown, who are the leaders on these perspectives. But on the other side, we have John Acrilla, who you know was the first person to articulate the idea of cyber war in the 1990s. Who's my friend at the Naval War College or the Naval Postgraduate School. We have Joe Nye operates in the space and we have a whole host of people that I work with and uh, and other friends in the community um, that uh, have very similar perspectives and it's not shaped by age um, you know it's really kind of sickening to see someone kind of make it kind of make a claim like well I know more than you the real the reality is like I don't think a lot of people do I've been working with the US government for five years I've served on a commission I mentioned that I, I gave testimony to the Senate and to the the UK. Uh, I've given talks, multiple talks to the CIA, the NSA, Cyber Command. Uh, I don't know anything less than anyone else, but that's kind of a claim. But the other thing, and the more sickening thing, is this kind of we've seen more war that influenced the pessimism. And it's basically saying that one of the reasons that people like me are not really too focused on the possibility of cyber war is that we don't have this pessimism that's rooted in seeing war. And Jay noted that he's a veteran. Uh, but I have to say that my co-author, Ben Jensen, uh, just got back from Afghanistan for his third tour of duty. 
my friend Erica Bogard or Longeren's husband, Sean Longeren, uh, has you know worked with Cyber Command for, for years. Um, there are uh, Jackie Schneider uh, is an Air Force reservist. There are a lot of people who are veterans who have combat experience in the space. And I think one of the things is we can't let our perceptions of fictions dominate how the real world operates and our perceptions of the real world. And I think that's what's really going on here. I, I would love to give a talk that says cyber's changed everything and it's dramatic factor in warfare. My life would be so much easier if I were to do that. But that's not intellectually honest. That's not the type of research community that we want to build and have built up in this space. So while I offer something different um, than most people who operate um, in this perspective, I think it's really kind of backed up by years and years of research and coverage of this field. And uh, yeah, I, I'm excited to take your questions and uh, happy to answer anything and talk about anything involving Russian military operations. So with that, I'll stop the presentation, but uh, happy to keep, keep going. Great, thank you very much, Brandon. Um, we now move to the question and answer portion of our program. Please submit your questions via the chat function at the bottom of your viewing screen. Uh, feel free to turn on your video function if you would like, uh, but please keep yourself muted. While we're waiting for questions to come in, ICFRC wants to thank all of its members and donors for their support. If you would like to join ICFRC or make a gift to support our programs, please go to icfrc.org and we thank you. Um, to, to get things kicked off, we've got a couple of good questions to get to, but I could you uh, talk a little bit about the different roles in, uh, in what's broadly cyber, uh, cyber uh, about the different roles of <clears throat> information versus uh, the kind of um, hacking that, um, that breaks down uh, software systems or things like that. So the you know, contributing to the echo chamber, uh, seems to me to be uh, distinguishable from hacking into electric grids. Yeah, and that's a great question. And it kind of goes to one of the problems we have in this field is that um, some of you probably remember in the 90s, they called all this stuff information warfare. And then 9-11 happened. And all the information warfare moved to the terrorism field. And then the field uh, was reconstituted as cybersecurity. So I, I very much side with the history of this field that really it's about attacks on information that really bother me the most. And I think we need to be very clear on distinguishing between leveraging digital effects on kinetic operations and leveraging digital effects on information operations and the sources of trust and foundations of modern society. And one is a lot more dangerous than the other. But on the other hand, um, I think we vastly overstated Russian capabilities for decades and this idea of Russian active measures being very successful. I, I have not seen much evidence of that. So while information operations are dangerous and uh, concerning, um, just like cyber operations, we haven't seen them really coerce. And uh, that's a tough proposition for a lot of people to deal with, but this is where we are in the field where we need to see some effects. Otherwise it's just, you know, squacking and talking. So. Okay, great. Let me get to uh, some of our other guests uh, or some of our other participants' questions. 
I wonder what is your take on the operations by anonymous cyber group? We know that a lot of Russian websites, including the Kremlin website, have been down for several days. Uh, they threatened to steal money from Russian citizens. Uh, they threatened on March 3rd. What are the powers of cyber criminals in fighting against authoritarian regimes? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, one, uh, the Russian internet's been down because the Russians have um, basically uh, taken themselves offline, but not attacked. So it was a preemptive move. Um, but I'm looking for this Washington Post thing we just submitted uh, today. Um, and, and I think one of the key things to note about these ransomware operations is that um, they tend to be not very effective um, because they're uncoordinated. And the other problem, of course, is that um, uh, before I came on today, uh, there was some news that possibly Anonymous has taken down Russian satellites. And um, all these things are well and good, especially during a massive war. But we have to be concerned with ongoing cyber operations that might lead to escalation and you know, uh, attacking civilian, uh, you know, the economic foundation of the Russian state is probably okay. But I really worry when you have private citizens attacking the Russian government and the Russian state and how that might lead to escalation because right now um, russia is a cornered animal and uh, it's just my view that you don't mess with cornered animals you don't mess with the bleeding tiger and that's what you know if if putin is a paper tiger it's still a tiger so you know we have to be careful so i'm really kind of concerned about these ransomware operations but you know in short uh, we've never seen them to be very effective their effects tend to be fleeting and they're concerning for the state because they might drag us into a wider Great, thanks. Next question is, in your view, is cyber warfare more useful for understanding terrorism than interstate war? Um, not for terrorism. Uh, I just uh, had a line in this Washington Post thing we sent in that basically um, remembers uh, Cyber Command talking about ISIS operations. And they just seem to be very shocked that operations against terrorist actors did not have an impact. And it shouldn't be very shocking that when you attack a low-tech adversary, that there is little impact. Um, and we're seeing that with Russia, too, because um, Russia has no comms. They have no ongoing digital connectivity. Um, they're relying on Ukrainian networks. And people are speculating, well, they didn't attack Ukrainian networks because that was their plan all along. And really, I think it's you know akin to the US government, where we talk about uh, EABO, expeditionary base operations. And when we talk about these expeditionary base operations or these BTG kind of equivalent um, uh, combat brigades, we enable them with cyber and digital communications. The Russians have not. So you can't really attack a low-tech adversary with technology. But I would say the thing that's most concerning for me and something that I've wanted to do for five years and hopefully I'm getting closer and closer is to work on cyber repression. I think that's the true cyber war when you leverage or its state leverages cyber capabilities to attack individuals. And we've seen that with the Pegasus zero click software. We've seen a lot of attacks on activists, on journalists and civil society members. And to me, that's the real danger of a cyber warfare because they can't really protect themselves and they depend on digital communication. Whereas the Russians can apparently invade an entire country with no communication. So there really isn't much to fight cyber in this war right now. But um, for a civil society group, 
there's a lot to fight about and there's a lot of concern about access. Um, so that's my fear. Okay, great. Um, can you talk about how effective the Russians have been at using social media to spread disinformation and, and social divisions? Well, I, I think what's very clear, and uh, it was good, G-O-O-D-E -G um, on Twitter, who I, I hope has a paper coming out soon, but um, he was demonstrating that the Russians did not launch social media information operations up until mid-February. So they've known that they were going to invade at least uh, in mid-November. And they've only started to do information operations in February. And by that time, they had already lost. And of course, Zelensky and other people have really won their information battle. So um, as much as we like to credit Russian active measures and their ability to manipulate social media, they have dramatically failed here. And it might even be to the point where we are very much underestimating Ukrainian failure because of the Soviet, sorry, the Russian failure to control the information space. So I think that's gonna be something very interesting to unpack in the future, but that's kind of what we're thinking about right now. Um, yeah, I evidently only like five other people besides Putin uh, knew what his plans were up until, you know, quite recently, I guess. Um, and and so no doubt the, the social media side of things just, didn't get going until late. That's um, a problem for invasion because you want everyone on board. I mean, in the US military, it's everyone to the Lieutenant Colonel uh, has a option to say something about strategy and the war game. And it's very clear the Russians did not do the same. Yeah, yeah. What about more uh, broadly about their use of social media, maybe going back even to 2016? Um, how, how do you assess the effectiveness? I don't think it's very effective, but on the other hand, um, they have had some interesting impacts. And uh, I don't want to speculate too much, but um, you know, John Mersheimer, of course, has uh, entered the news cycle <laughs> because the Russian Foreign Ministry, Foreign Affairs Ministry, uh, retweeted one of his articles and said, "You know, look, it's the breath, it's the West fault." Um, but where I would suggest something's happening is that I, I basically live on YouTube, and all of a sudden. Uh, Mersheimer articles are being, or Mersheimer videos are being pushed on my YouTube algorithm. So I'm wondering, really, are they really trying to influence the impact of the YouTube, the TikTok, the Instagram algorithm? Um, that's going to be something very interesting to look at uh, in the near future. And I'm kind of excited to kind of unpack these things. That as devastating as war is, and as um, much massive suffering the Ukrainian people are going under right now, um, there are some positives we can take from this combat operation. And one of them is that Russian uh, ability to control social media is much more in the imagination than in reality. Yeah, I, I don't know that John Mearsheimer, who's a uh, uh, political science expert on international relations uh, here in the States, whether he can really compete with the uh, uh, young Ukrainian woman uh, showing everybody on TikTok how to drive a Russian tank that's been captured. Uh, they, uh, Apparently, that that wasn't true either. Dresner took it down. I, I didn't. Um, I, I didn't yeah. see what happened, but I guess that's misinformation, also. Yeah, but pretty, uh, pretty catchy. Uh, all right. Uh, next question is: What can you tell us about uh, what Russian citizens are seeing right now concerning the invasion? Do they have access to electronic sources that come from outside of Russia? 
China's tried to lock down internet information. How successful has are the Russians at this? Um, there's been a lot of information that suggests that it's not even on the news in the Russian state, um, which is obviously concerning given the level of protest. So they've uh, been able to suppress a lot of this information. Um, but we'll see how this develops because um, the Russians uh, came out today and said 500 people have died and nearly 3,000 have been wounded, which is probably a dramatic undercount of Russian failure. Um, but that they're willing to admit that is a dramatic change from what they've been willing to admit in the past. Um, much like China during the Winter Olympics, um, if you're able to operate VPNs and understand how communication works, you can get all the information you want. But I don't know how much the average Russian is really uh, uptaking this information. And uh, I, I'm really excited. Uh, my, uh, I mean, uh, it's tough to say I'm excited about these things, but uh, my friend Sam Witt and uh, his co-author Vera uh, do surveys and combat things. And I'm really curious to see what we start to understand about the Russian understanding of this operation. And that's going to be really interesting. So we'll see what comes out. Great. Um, I'm going to read a, a comment from one of our uh, participants. My personal take as a Ukrainian who is on social media, a lot of Russians have no idea about the invasion. Most of the relatives of those in the Russian army who are invading Ukraine right now have no idea where their sons are and husbands are. Uh, they believe they're doing training. Uh, and does that also accord with your sense of what's going on? Oh, yeah. And I mean, I, and I, I'm forgetting the terms right now, but there's a, there's a big problem in that the Russians are coercing people to sign up for longer term military contracts. And there's a difference between a conscript and someone who signs up for conflict. And that uh, Daily Beast was suggesting a lot of people had signed these contracts at the last minute under duress. And other people are just being sent to Ukraine with no justification for the war. So, you know, a lot of this harkens to, you know, one of my favorite books, All Five of the Western Front, when they go back to the German home front and, you know, the Germans just repeat all these, uh, you know, platitudes about the war. And, you know, it's really... Um, there's something very different going on in reality. And um, it, that's the most interesting thing about social media is the divergence between reality and our perceptions of what reality is right now. And I think uh, a lot of people maybe are a little bit uh, going to one extreme or the other, whether that be Russian failure or whether that be this idea that the Russians are just gonna get it together any moment now and they're gonna take all of your thing. And I, I think neither side is really accurate right now. Okay. Um, would you care to consider the end game for the war in Ukraine? I don't know what's going to happen right now. I, I know a lot of people I talk to in the policy community are very much concerned with uh, Putin having offerings. Putin, Putin, Putin having the ability to stop the conflict and draw down. And if we don't give him these offerings, uh, we're kind of leading him to a more of a dramatic situation. And uh, Josh Courser um, tweeted this on, uh, you know, on Twitter, but he was asking political scientists, you know, what about this war has changed your mind? And for me, it's really the probability of nuclear strikes. And I don't mean, uh, you know, uh, total nuclear warfare, but I do mean that, uh, you know, just as we considered in the Korean War or even a little bit in the Vietnam War, there might be this sort of reach for a tactical nuke. And that is what's very concerning and scary to me, especially if we don't give Putin the ability to leave the situation. 
On the other hand, though, I think a lot of us are really hoping for that dramatic palace coup, you know, that death of Stalin moment. Um, and uh, I, I, I don't think it's going to happen. I wish it would, but you know, I, I don't really know what the end game is. And I think it's probably very concerning that I think both sides are kind of in it for the long haul right now. And I know the Ukrainians are willing to talk peace, but only if the Russians stop shelling civilian populations. Whereas the Russians are going to start shelling and keep shelling civilian populations to change the facts on the ground and take more territory as they start to negotiate with the Russians. So we're in a very bad spot right now. Um, on one hand, the Russians are stuck. They're not moving. They're getting decimated left and right. On the other hand, um, they still have 150,000 troops in the country. Uh, and that's a lot of troops. I mean, it's a very big country. It's a very, uh, very, there's a lot of Ukrainian people, but um, I don't know how effective it is to kind of give every cram a hunting rifle. Um, they, they need advanced weaponry. Okay, we've got some questions that kind of take us a little uh, farther afield. Um, to other countries. Uh, first is, how do China's cyber attack capabilities compare to US capabilities? Um, China is very much focused on espionage, but we've also seen a little bit of a change in that their efforts to steal information have not worked out the way they anticipated. So I think we've seen over since 2018, we've seen the Chinese kind of change and shift a little bit. Their main focus is, um, on controlling their net citizens and controlling the dynamics of protest and engagement. And uh, you know, uh, Molly uh, Roberts at San Diego and Gary King about a lot of research on this, but that's where we are really with, uh, with Chinese cyber capabilities. They're, they're very active, they're net citizens and mobilizing millions of net citizens as proxy, proxy cyber actors is dangerous. But in terms of uh, Chinese uh, cyber capabilities, uh, they're really focused on espionage and even that's not been very successful. Um, a side note is they took from the Persian Gulf War, the first one, that we won so easily because we had cyber power. And I think they were a little bit dismayed to realize that that wasn't the case. We had GPS, but you know we didn't cyber the Iraqi opposition. So that's where we are with China. They're annoying, uh, they pester us, they steal from us constantly but it doesn't exactly seem to give them an advantage. You would expect them to spy. Um, the question is really how effective are they at spying? And uh, I don't see very much effectiveness right now. Okay, great. Yeah, I'll throw in that uh, my son who uh, works in a company that uh, helps build wind farms told me that on the day of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, attacks on their computers, which are a kind of regular ongoing thing, uh, jumped up tenfold from China. And I don't know if that goes to the question of how China will be supporting Russia uh, during the course of this war, um, but he thought it was striking that it wasn't Russian uh, efforts to get into their computers, it was Chinese. Uh, it could be. Um, I mean, I, I think one of the problems is that we can't really expect um, that we're going to see exactly where the attack is coming from in terms of internet network traffic, and that likely the best cyber operators are going to hide where they're coming from. Um, or maybe it's just the Chinese just don't even care anymore. But um, we've not seen a lot of evidence that they've uh, been able to steal technology quite well. 
And every time they steal some version of the F-35 jet, they can't replicate the engines. They can't put the things together. It's just like saying you can steal the plans for a nuclear bomb online, or you can probably go to a Reddit thread and get the plans for a nuclear bomb. Are you going to literally be able to make one? And uh, I was very much reminded when I lived in Scotland that the Japanese were very much focused on taking Scottish whiskey and replicating it in Japan. And they were never able to do it despite the cooperation of the Scottish people. So um, I think this kind of mimicry of complex systems um, is a lot more difficult than people are really letting on. So, but we'll see how that evolves in the future. A kind of follow-up to that has come in. Uh, is it possible for China to hide malware in the hardware they manufacture and we buy? It is. Um, and actually, we, we are a lot better at that. Uh, we've done it multiple <laughs> times. Um, so yeah, it's possible, but one, it's very difficult. It has to take long uh, foresight and planning. Um, and then, you know, in the end, you know, you got to really think like, okay, so China takes over all the routers. Um, you know, what, what are they going to do? Like, you know, shut down my internet? I don't, I don't you know, it, it's just the, the step two. I, I kind of call this the South Park underpants known problem where they, they have this thing like we're going to steal the underpants and then the South Park kids go and then what and you know that's kind of the problem it's like okay well we're going to steal this but you know are we going to plant this uh, these back doors and then what um, really what we're focused on in policy is ensuring that um, the hardware vendors are taking security into their own hands and right now they kind of leave it all up to everyone else and there's no like liability uh, because there's a lot of lawyers in this country and there's not a lot of liability for the failure of the manufacturer. So we're really working on instituting checks and balances in the hardware itself, but it's very difficult in this American nation. Uh, and I say this working at a libertarian think tank uh, for the government to impact the systems and processes of uh, American manufacturers. So we'll see, but um, it's, it's, a, it's a precarious problem but it just, it, it kind of goes to like the James Bondification of a lot of what we do with cybersecurity. And it's like, you can think of these dramatic ideas of doing this or that, um, but you know, it's, it's really the simple things that, that really kind of disrupt and they really hurt people, particularly attacks on schools, attacks on medical research. Those are the things that are way more concerning to me than the sort of strategic option of uh, taking over American routers. And I don't know what happens then. That's really the problem. Okay, great. You, you indicated at the beginning um, that you might be able to share uh, sources of other information for people. We've got a request. Uh, where could I learn about Israeli cyber campaigns directed against the US government and business entities? <laughs> Um, luckily, the Israeli free press is very active in exposing Israeli operations. Um, something I've noticed about the Israelis, which I think is very kind of funny in the space, is that the Americans have gone out of their way to not claim attribution for the Stuxnet attack on Iran. And the Israelis are just like, it's us. We did it. You know, we did it all. <laughs> the U.S. wasn't even involved. So the Israelis are very active in the space and actually claiming uh, impacts of operations. But I think uh, really what we've seen lately, uh, obviously, is not attacks on America, but um, uh, more conventional style technological attacks on the Iranians. And of course, recently they uh, put bombs in the concrete. <laughs> um, they uh, they put like an assassination uh, machine guns in a car and you know launched it from distance. Um, so the Israelis are doing a lot of interesting things, but it's not really cyber. Uh, 
So that's kind of a problem. But the Israeli, um, the Israeli, I wouldn't say population, but some of the Israeli threat actors have been very dangerous, particularly in their use of the Pegasus uh, software that was developed by a Italian uh, freelance company. And that's the zero-click mountain. That's the thing where I think we're pretty clear that um, the, uh, the Saudis got into Khashoggi's phone or they got into Khashoggi's wife's phone. And that's why they knew where he was. So it's things like that that can be very dangerous. But it's also a little bit more simple in terms of just finding locations and not like killing someone through some heart attack through your phone, so. Great. Um, Russia has been trying to establish a sovereign internet uh, within its own borders uh, for some time now. How does the war in Ukraine change their chances of implementing that? Um, will the rest of the world try to isolate Russia in terms of information flow, given the sanctions we see now? Uh, I think it's very likely. and This is going to push this more dramatically forward. But there are significant consequences for doing this. Obviously, you know, connecting uh, this connection from economic markets um, you know, there's a big debate in the crypto community because, of course, you know, uh, if people want to publish Rus Russia, but then a lot of people in the crypto community are like, well, this is exactly why we developed crypto, to let, uh, <laughs> to let deviant actors actually have access to money. So it's going to be interesting in that there are consequences for Russia disconnecting itself. And that's why they've never really disconnected themselves, despite them talking about this for 15 years at this point, because why? You know, you're just going to disconnect yourself from the globe. And uh, they're doing a great job of doing that right now by invading Ukraine and causing mass civilian casualties. Um, but there's really no great logic for it. The same thing with the Chinese. Um, this idea of a separated and isolated internet is, is a fantasy, really. And, you know, all it does is take a, a lame goo to, you know, win a few uh, awards and tell every Chinese person, hey, if you want to go on Instagram, get a VPN. And what's China going to do against that? You know, it's very difficult to deal with, you know, these, these teenagers. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Okay, we have time for one final question, I think. Um, what's your view of the Havana syndrome? I, I have no idea. Um, it's, it's interesting. It's mystifying. Um, yeah. It could be akin to mass uh, psychosis. You know, we've seen like, what was this like in the 1100s when the whole French town was dancing? And I don't know. I have no idea. It's just, it's just, um, it could be a really interesting microwave operation, or it could just be a lot of people who have a lot of headaches because they work in places with lead paint. I don't know. So, yeah, I'm not going to speculate, but it's fun to watch. All right. Uh, with that, we will conclude today's program. Uh, thanks very much to Brandon Valeriano for his excellent presentation and for sharing his expertise with us today. Uh, Brandon, I'm honored to virtually present you with the coveted ICFRC mug uh, for tea, coffee, or the beverage of your choice. We will coordinate uh, delivery details with you very soon. ICFRC's next program is on Tuesday, March 8th, which is also International Women's Day. And in honor of that holiday, we're excited to host Emmy Simmons from the Center for Strategic and International Affairs to speak to us about food, gender, and the challenges ahead. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. We are adjourned.